Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the Double Edge Double Bill, where you get two film and or media discussions for the price of one, which is nothing. week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to randomly select the yin and yang of a double feature. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for each episode. Let the chaos begin. Alright, you primitive screwheads, listen up. I am Thomas Mariani. Fuck you, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> and I am Adam Shebitch Thomas. Oh yeah, he's a shebitch, alright. Let me tell you guys out there. Um, but yes, we have, uh, someone in our root cellar for this intro. It is Tori Topina, our guest from the previous episode on the Halloween franchise. Tori, how you doing? Really getting sick and tired of you keeping me in this fucking chest and only letting me out for the show. Um, but, alright. Hey, guys, I'm back, and please help me. <laughs> That's where we keep all of our guests, inside of a box. And in case you couldn't tell from our intro, we are doing an episode in honor of Sam Raimi, who, if we have this all right, we are releasing this on his birthday, October 23rd. Happy birthday, Mr. Raimi. Happy birthday, Mr. Raimi. And by the way, he's from Michigan. I'm from Michigan. I'm not saying I'm responsible for his success, but I mean, uh, maybe. Maybe. So 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 if the Detroit Lions actually won a playoff game, that means we wouldn't have gotten Spider-Man three. <laughs> Michigan humor. Uh, no, that, yeah. no, that's just bad humor. <laughs> so Michigan humor. Anyway, yeah. all right, that's enough of the Michigan bashing. Because uh, we are here to celebrate the career of Sam Raimi, who really, upon like doing some research for this episode, it's weird how little he's directed, especially as of recent. Right. That's what I'm saying. So I'm going through, I'm like, all right, cool, I can do this. Fuck, this is really hard. I thought he had done more, honestly. Yeah, especially just this decade, the only movie he's done is one particular movie, which I don't want to maybe necessarily mention, because it might be one of our two topics. But yeah, obviously Sam Raimi, highly influential filmmaker, started off in low-budget horror, obviously why we're kind of doing it in October, along with his birthday. Uh, A man known for his horror films with the Evil Dead franchise, and a few others that would come later on in the game, uh, but, you know, also essentially helping to make the superhero franchise what it is today. Oh, 100%. Yeah, with yeah. The, the Spider-Man movies. He did a tremendous job with that. Yeah. And also just very weird left and right turns along the way that are always curious, if not always the most successful. I can agree with that. I, I think Blade sort of opened the door, Axeman busted off its hinges, and Spider-Man walked in and flipped over the fucking table. I honestly don't think we would have what we have now without Sam Raimi. The guy created one of the most iconic horror characters of all time with Ash. Yes. So, you know, if you don't like Sam Raimi, I ain't trying to fuck with you. Yeah. Are you a fan of Sam Raimi, Tori? Of course. I honestly think people don't uh, bring up the gift a lot more as being one of the few times in the 90s to the early 2000s where a director was actually able to get something out of Keanu Reeves performing beyond, whoa, and dude, 
Yeah, Sam Raimi's a fucking god as far as horror and basically gave us all this fertile soil that now we have universes made out of superhero films now because of the, the fucking foundation he built. You're welcome for Venom, guys. Anyway, <laughs> uh, let's get to the part where we actually have the movies here, which those of you who don't know, um, each week Adam and I have two movies that we bring to the table that uh, we don't know each other's picks, only that they're part of a, whatever topic we've invented here. And uh, we each have assigned both our movies numbers between 1 and 10, and then the other person will pick a number between 1 and 10 and decide whichever one gets closest the good and bad feature. I have the two good movies this time, Adam has the two bad ones, and whenever we have a guest, they are the ones who end up pulling those triggers and shooting the bullet. So, Tori, pick a number between 1 and 10 for my two good picks. Alright, 1 to 10 for each movie. I'm gonna do it right this time. You're not gonna rush me. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna shoot a uh, 6 for uh, the good movie. Nope, that's how you stop. Oh. Yeah, but that's that's how you do it right. Is so you just do one at a time. All right, all right, all right. Yeah, yeah so it was a hold, hold down the gun, Mister Trigger all Happy. Right, it's going down. It's going down slowly. I'm sorry. Jesus Christ, <laughs> Mister Quick and the Dead over here. So number six being that um, the closest one was at number seven. I had Sam Raimi's underappreciated gem from 2009, Drag Me to Hell. Oh, I, ah, I was hoping I was going to get the gift. Okay. That's a good choice, Thomas. That's yes. a good choice. I'm, uh, I'm happy with that. And then at number two, I had his very underrated early example of superhero dumb, Darkman. He directed Darkman? Yes, he huh. did. I only produced it. Go Liam ahead, Neeson's, totally. y'all. <laughs> not, oh, not a fan of Darkman? Put a button on that. We'll see, what, uh, we'll see what happens here. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, uh, so I can I, I can I can shoot now without being called yes. the trigger happy trigger happy Negro here. Okay. So Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't call you that, Adam. No, we're not. We would not call you that. Please, please, we're great. No, no, we, no, I, I, Tori's my black friend. Tori, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm gonna let this shout out, but uh, internet, leave my white friends alone. Okay. So I'm gonna shoot a. Uh, I'm gonna shoot a. Uh, I'm gonna shoot a nine for the bad one. Uh, okay, at number eight, which was closest, I have his study on the superhero genre, Dark Man. Oh <laughs> damn! Okay, we're playing yeah. this game, eh? Okay, okay. Yeah. It's literally a flip flop of the last episode. Yep. <laughs> Fuck. And at number two, I had Oz the Great and Powerful. Oh, thank God! I went with Dark Man. <laughs> oh, thank God for the nine, right? Well, yeah, you picked a go- two good movies. That's some straight shooting text, yeah, uh, right? <laughs> right, we did, didn't we? All right, well, we'll get into all that in a bit. But, Tori, thank you for coming on uh, at, what was it, your Twitter account? Uh, Tori Knows Beats at TCVB91. Yes, follow him there. But we got ourselves a double feature to get to, so we'll be right back after this. <laughs> Sam Raimi, the director of Spider-Man and the Evil Dead trilogy, returns to horror with a vengeance. A dark spirit has come upon you. I will come to take you. Take me where? To burn in hell for eternity. Drag me to hell. Rated PG-13. Starts tomorrow. And we are back from our double feature, and we have a very special guest joining us this time. Uh, it is Scott Crawford of the Podcast by the Cemetery. Scott, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing good, Thomas. How are you guys doing? 
We're doing all right. I mean, we got these bandages on. We've been horribly scarred, but it's not that different from normal. <laughs> We're fine. Yeah. Hey, at least you don't have a gypsy curse put on you. <laughs> not yet, no. Um, right. I, I, but then again, <laughs> I sometimes fine. wish, especially if it's like, Theaner, thank you. I appreciate that. So, oh my god, uh, that's so nice. <laughs> you, you really care about my health. I appreciate that. But Scott, I wanted to ask you, uh, we invited you on, and what jumped out to you as a topic was the Sam Raimi episode. Would you say you're a big fan of Mr. Raimi and his work? Uh, I'm more a fan of a lot of his uh, older stuff, especially you know the Evil Dead series and like some of his other little jumps into horror but I just figured it would be kind of an interesting uh, subject for the show. Well, I mean, we are covering two, two of his uh, less oft-discussed films, given it's not a Spider-Man movie or an Evil Dead movie that we're talking about this evening, though one could argue at least our first feature kind of fits in that same universe, roughly. That film is Drag Me to Hell, which came out in 2009, specifically uh, May 29, 2009, and was Raimi's first non-Spider-Man movie in about a decade, almost. This was his return to horror after a while. He originally wrote this with his brother Ivan Raimi, who's written several of the films with him. I know I saw this theatrically. Did we all see this theatrically? Were we all part of that hype of Sam Raimi coming back to horror back in 2009? I ended up having to wait on uh, DVD, because I was pretty much after Spider-Man 3, I just kind of gave up on Sam Raimi for a while and just only waited for his stuff to come to physical media or VOD. Uh, yeah, I was kind of the same way. I think I rented it, like, the day it came out, though. Um, do you guys end up liking Drag Me to Hell, especially upon this rewatch? Uh, yeah, I actually was, uh, surprised on how much I actually enjoyed this one. I mean, it's definitely not one of his greatest films ever, but it definitely had that, like, Evil Dead vibe which really made it very entertaining. I can say I hated it more the first time I saw it. <laughs> that, that's, that's about the best I can give you. You could tell that it had been a while for him to do a movie like this. It feels clunky to me, and you know we'll get into it a little bit more. But what about you, Thomas? Are you a fan of this one? Uh, I'm actually quite a big fan of Drag Me to Hell. I do agree that it's not one of his top-tier films. I would still say... You know, something like Evil Dead 2 or Spider-Man 2. Those are like top-tier, super great Raimi. But I think this one's definitely very underappreciated. I really love a lot of what this one does, in particular building the uh, main character, as played here by Alison Lohman, uh, who plays Christine Brown, um, a young woman who is trying to move up in her bank job and has to make a tough decision that involves her completely denying this loan from this uh, older... Um, Sorry to use the term, it's kind of used in the movie Gypsy Woman, as played by Lorna Raver. I think it's an interesting take on sort of the Evil Dead slapstick, because it it definitely is in more of a uh, grounded world than the Evil Dead movies, obviously, which were always kind of in a, you know, over-the-top horror comedy scenario, whereas what I like about this movie is that you have the Alison Lohman character clearly being a, you know, a woman trying to work, trying to move up in the world, trying to be less of this person that she'd always been, which was sort of the awkward farm girl. She's trying to get out of that mold. It's very clearly shown to you, as Sam Raimi often does. He's not a subtle filmmaker, as we will definitely display yeah. tonight. Um, but I, I, I really did believe her as 
not necessarily the most likable character, but I think a very real character, which is odd for, like I said, Raimi, who deals often very over-the-top kind of characters. But I think Alison Lohman portrays a, a character who I could honestly believe, and especially as someone who works in customer service and has had the experience of having to, you know, decline somebody on something who is literally begging to me about it. I felt for her in that situation. Now, she made necessarily the wrong decision, but I would argue it's a relatable decision. Yeah, I've never done with retail or anything like that or dealing with customer service. Couldn't relate, but I do understand. I found Allison Lohman to be kind of wooden in this, to be honest with you. I don't know, man. Like, the character I liked, I liked it was someone who's kind of down to earth and willing to kind of maybe let her morals take a back seat just so she can get a little forward in life, you know, with her job. That's something that that's relatable to a lot of people. And just, I don't know, man. Something about her in this. There was not a lot. I didn't get a lot out of her. Do you think it would have been better if uh, they went with Raimi's original choice for the role, which was Ellen Page, who had to drop out due to an actor strike at the time? See, no, and simply because as young as Allison Lohman looks, Ellen Page looked like she was like 12 at this time. <laughs> yeah, this would have been like two years after Juno. Yeah, <laughs> it would not have. It, it would have been like, why, is, why are they letting this kid off? Oh, they're letting this little girl work <laughs> in the break. No, don't be wrong. I think Ellen Page is a great actress, and I mean, she probably could have maybe done a better job on that part but she wouldn't have looked the part at all it would have been completely unbelievable so i mean i don't know man i really liked her in big fish mm-hmm. i thought she was fantastic so i was kind of excited to see her in this one but i don't know i just had a disconnect i think the Woody acting award goes to jason long in this not her really justin long or writer. justin long yeah <laughs> but but yes no uh, that was his brother it's justin long's brother jason <laughs> super <He's acting> <laughs> <laughs> it's like Jeremy and Jason London. But but no, I, I think what I like about um, Loman in this movie is that she is definitely not the typical type to play like a Sam Raimi lead, which is, like I said, it's a usually kind of ner- nerdy, nebbish dude, like a Tobey Maguire or obviously a Bruce Campbell. But I think here having her, I one, I think she's believably that part. I could see her as a former um, you know, girl who dealt with obesity as a child and then later on kind of tried to is completely trying to change gears on that. She's always someone who constantly feels like she's trying to hide her older personality. Like I love how she slips into the southern accident points, like during the big car scene where she's like, I got you, you old bitch stuff like that. Yeah. I think she does a great job of portraying this woman who's trying to kind of hide her upbringing and from for various reasons, obviously like socially with her uh, boyfriend's parents um, and with her work trying to be more assertive and how she ends up just sort of putting greed a- as an attempt to advance rather than actually kind of doing that in a more authentic way and I, I think that really translates with stuff like that or probably my favorite bit especially watching it this time is there's a bit where she goes to the parents uh, Justin Long's parents house for dinner and she talks about oh we used to have a cat I know how that feels when you lose a cat oh. <laughs> and, and Justin Long says we have a cat right and she just makes this look like side eye like anyway <laughs> I love that bit so much I think it's a great bit of acting from her um, that's obviously like it brings up suspicion but it's such a wonderful comedic beat of a moment and it's especially interesting because Loman apparently had no history with horror films didn't like scary movies but I think she is very game if nothing else you can agree with that Adam, especially when the stunt sequences sort of come up I don't have to agree with anything <laughs> but no yeah I mean yeah she I mean she did her job she came off just so kind of in certain parts stuck up but in other parts real kind of 
I don't know, man. I just couldn't. I can't do it. I can't do it. I, I've tried several times with this movie, and it, it just bothers me every time. Uh, personally, like, I thought she did fine. I mean, she wasn't like outstanding, but yeah, like that whole entire scene with her at their parents' house was just fantastic. Just the way she was playing it out, and then like starting to see things that were happening and trying to like act normal. Like she does a great job of just being like nice and calm, and then like going kind of crazy when she, things happening around her. And also, yeah, like like you were saying with the weird stunts and everything like that, I I got to give her props having a lot of that stuff. Uh, done to her yeah it's definitely a case where he's torturing the actor in question um in his usual sam raimi way and especially i liked uh, i got the scream factory blu-ray uh recently and i was watching uh, they had an interview with her and it's the first time i'd seen her in ages because really after this she only did very small roles in films that were either directed or produced by her now husband uh mark nevildeen of nevildeen taylor but besides that she hasn't really done much of anything in the last decade or so since this movie came out and she talked about the fact that she really wanted to do this more because of doing the stunt work and um really just wanting to kind of jump into something different and a bit odd for her that she hadn't normally done as because as you mentioned adam she had done smaller things in like big fish and other movies where that played more on sort of her natural beauty versus this one kind of doing something a bit over the top and silly. Uh, I thought um, it, it really did work for her. And especially in a lot of the sequences with, we should mention the person who even more so than Justin Long, she shares the screen with so much is a uh, Lorna Raver as Mrs. Ganush, um, who I think it's a tremendous makeup job from uh, Greg Nicotero to really create this character who obviously like I said she's you know Eastern European kind of the gypsy stereotype Um, it's not maybe the most culturally sensitive especially as of recent uh, depiction of such a character but I think she just really goes into it as well and how she just especially goes into just all the disgusting stuff her character does like spinning up some dude uh, oh god (laughs) (laughs) out of all the other shit that part gets me every time I'm like, oh, that when she gums her chin. <laughs> that part had me laughing so hard. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how even like the depictions of her when she's clearly like a special effects dummy just also display so much malice toward um, Allison Lohman. Like when her body is at the Eastern European funeral and it falls over and Allison Lohman, she's like vomits embalming fluid onto her. Oh, um, oh yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's just like, it's a great way I think of because obviously on its face she's like oh it's just disgusting for disgusting sake but what I think works about that especially upon this watch I didn't even connect it until now a lot of the imagery is obviously based around you know Alison Lohman getting a lot of stuff like inserted into her mouth or getting vomit on her it's just it's a lot of that kind of imagery and when you think about the connection of her being a former fat girl um, it almost feels like it's really her kind of confronting a bulimic problem she probably had in the past Hmm, I never even thought of that. I would think so, because she damn sure got skinny. You know, the oral fixation with the food and stuff like that. That's kind of how I took it, too. And, and even the scene at the dinner table, it's, like, all about eating this, like, very, you know, sugary cake that she made. The cake is treated as sort of this monster. She can't even, like, face it, and it just, like, sucks in her fork and all this other shit. It feels definitely like her kind of being confronted by this demon with something that clearly traumatized her in her past. And um, I, I think that's 
something that's been weighing on her the whole movie, and there's several points where, like, she looks at, you know, like, snack cakes and all this other stuff and turns away, and then she eats the ice cream at a point of total defeat. It definitely feels like the, um, the creature is, the Lamia, as it were, is definitely throwing that in her face. Even my roommate who was watching this with me, he was just like, is this directed by Sam Yes, it is. He had he'd never seen it before or anything, and like he knew right off the bat. Yeah, the crazy camera movements and all that. Yep, it's all there. And by the way, can we just say fuck Justin Long's parents, man? I mean, good uh, God, especially especially his mother. Oh, wow, she was yeah. just awful. What a raging thunder bitch! I just <laughs> I couldn't believe it. But you know what, though, man, since we were talking about Ellen Page being looking too young to be a bank teller doesn't justin long look a little young to be a professor yeah he kind of does um i mean they they kind of point that out too where there's the point where um she says i thought you would have grown a full beard by now it's like yeah i thought so too but i i like justin long in this movie honestly because he feels like the perfect clueless boyfriend for alice and he doesn't bother me he plays the part of being a rich kid who's trying to hide the fact that he's a rich kid right hide the fact that he comes from privilege i mean he does it well I think he does a really good job at that, um, and especially even how he plays sort of the sarcastic, um, you know, doubter as she gets further and further into the sort of weird occult mythology that's going on here. But I think they're a cute couple, um, despite all, you know, the kind of doubt that he has, and he really does care about her, even as, like, the shit gets crazier and crazier, and especially by the end, when he's like, look, I, I got the $10,000 for you, because I know how much this means to you. And even at the crucial point of that ending, it, he's doing it in a wrong-headed sense of trying to do something nice, like, oh, look, I found your button, which I want to talk about more once we get yeah, sure. to the end of this discussion. But yeah, I, I think he's a charming oaf, oh. which I thought is what he usually does, but Scott, you obviously disagree with that. Well, I felt like his acting was a bit wooden, but like his character in general just felt wooden as well. So I'm guessing that's just kind of the character he's playing. Like you're saying, like the oaf of a boyfriend. I don't know. There was something about him, but I'm also not the biggest fan of Justin Long. So that could be a little bit of bias coming out of me too. Did, did you get some like PTSD when he was in front of a MacBook and you're like, ah, oh, no, John Hodgman, <laughs> don't show up, please. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> you know, I'm not a big fan of Justin Long either for the most part. In fact, the only thing that he's in that I actually like him in is a little five minutes in Zack and Miri. He makes me laugh my ass off. It's not that he's ever bad. It's just he he's so unlikable to me. The, the trouble is what you're saying is unfortunately basically what Hollywood kind of treated Justin Long as. That's just kind of what they right. kind of saw him as as well. Because after this, really, I can't think of too many bigger movies. He's mostly just been in, like, very sort of straight-to-video schlocky comedies. Might that be because of him? I don't want to necessarily say anything about me. I don't know. But also, uh, at the same time, I do agree that he's not usually the most engaging presence, even when he shows up. I think he's much better, I agree with you, as a supporting player, like in Zack and Mary or in Dodgeball. <laughs> no, but real quick, to go back to Lorna Raver, she stole the movie, dude. Mm-hmm. There's no question. What a good antagonist. And she was completely believable, and yet you were you kind of sympathized with her in a way. I mean, the whole time you're feeling bad for her. She's about to lose her house. She's hacking all that shit up, sucking on candy. And I mean, you're just like, okay, stop. But she was, she was really good. The car scene was so tense. I mean, and they were kicking each other's asses in that car. Is Gypsy not okay to say? Is that considered... Um, sort of racist or culturally inappropriate? Um, I've, I've heard a bit of that as of reason. I think it's very nebulous, but at the same time, I could totally see why, because, you know, when you think Gypsy, you think 
Um, just a Eastern European person who steals and travels by cart and is extremely sort of ornery and all this other stuff. I, I think, I don't know. I can see why um, it might be necessarily the most sure. appropriate term. But regardless, I, I do agree that I think she portrays that role to the hilt. And I think especially does a really great job with um, sort of the accents and the use of some of the Hungarian uh, curse words that are in there. And I love, there's literally a behind-the-scenes bit that I saw on the Blu-ray where she says, oh, I can use this word, and that means bitch, and Sam Raimi's just in the corner like, great, do it. Because I think that's what also works about the the movie, and obviously this is a big thing with the Evil Dead movies, and I think it translates here in a bigger studio production, is that Sam Raimi is someone who likes to play off the cuff, likes to kind of mess things up in the script and all this other stuff. Like, apparently she wasn't even named Christine, the main actress originally, but in the original script, but Alison Lohman was like, I think she's a Christine. And he's like, sure, do it. Let's, let's, let's do it like that. Uh, he's like, he's a guy who likes sort of like allowing the actors and himself to like play off of the situation a bit more. And I think that comes across in sort of a lot of the sort of small things that happen, especially in the car scene, which is one of the bigger set pieces of the movie. I think does a tremendous job of doing so much in enclosed space, especially um, with stuff like the the ruler going in uh, to her to her oh, mouth. Man. Come on, <laughs> and then, silly. Wow, a, a silly Sam Raimi horror movie. That's that's so <laughs> rare. That's that's true. That's a good point. <laughs> Unlike him at all. Um, I quit. <laughs> but I, I think that works because, you know, in, say, like, you know, the traditional Sam Raimi movies, it's much more of, like we mentioned, kind of a over-the-top circumstance even before they get into, say, the cabin in Evil Dead. These are very heightened versions of typical um, teenagers. Versus here, I like the sort of bouncing back and forth between having, like, these very silly, over-the-top comedic moments that still kind of, like, um, are going on, like I said, with a more grounded atmosphere and character. I think that's a sort of different take for Raimi. I think it works here for me. Um, would you agree with that, Scott, maybe, especially in this car sequence? Yeah, especially the car sequence. But yeah, like like you are saying, the uh, seriousness for this film, like, before, like, all the antics happen, it is like a, a different feel for a Sam Raimi film, and I really did enjoy how that played out, because normally you get your characters with one-liners, that, like Bruce Campbell and all that, so you, you can't take that movie seriously. Evil Dead 2 or Army of Darkness seriously at all. Where this, you know, there are serious genuine moments and then the terrifying moments and then the straight up goopy moments. It's just a nice blend. And especially in that car scene, like you were saying, because yeah, like you could tell that she was truly fighting for her life at the same time, like Black or Wall filming this. Now, now, Adam, you did say that he's obviously pulling a lot of his tricks, but you did say it felt a bit rusty. Um, did you? Wh- why would you say that, especially in like a sequence like the car sequence or any of the other set pieces? Well, I want to go as far as the car sequence so much, but you know, there's just a lot of the Sam Raimi quick cuts and you know the noise jumps and everything. It's it's just I never felt in the Evil Dead movies that he was ever copying what had already been done like what he already did in the previous. It always felt like he was evolving. And in this one, it just felt like he was copying what he'd already done. Nobody does those type of shots like Sam Raimi does, but it was just nothing fresh. None of it felt fresh. 
I think what I like about it is that I would say it doesn't feel necessarily like he's copying another style as much as I think he's taking a different perspective on that style. Like we mentioned, uh, the sort of grounded nature of, I think, the base of the movie with Alison Lohman and Justin Long, those characters, I think makes those goofier sequences all the more heightened. And I think more importantly, uh, this was a PG-13 and that was very intentional on Raimi's part because he didn't want to necessarily do the over-the-top gore that was in especially the first two Evil Dead movies. He kind of wanted to stick away from that and go obviously more for some of the like slimier elements. The only gore sequence is obviously the nosebleed bit, which um, which was lot, amazing, right? Which credit to David Paymer, the bit of him saying, "Did I get any in my mouth?" is tremendous. <laughs> that is just he's covered in blood everywhere. He's like, "Did I get any in my mouth?" is <laughs> so good. That um, had me laughing so hard. Yeah, yeah, but, but I would argue that is sort of a restraint. That is a step where he's deciding, like, I'm going to do something that's more, in effect, like a uh, spook house movie. It's going into, like, a haunted house, especially the whole seance scene, which has definitely the most Evil Deadisms in terms of there's, like, the one guy who's there, like, a deadite who's, like, going around. Dancing in the air. <laughs> yes, uh, but then he takes other weird turns, like that fucking goat. I love that goat puppet. That fucking goat puppet saying you are is a, a great example of him taking something familiar that he's often done and putting a newer spin on it with like he's it's a fucking goat possessed by a demon. Come on. Yeah, but, but it it was a deer head in Evil Dead too. No, but did the goat head say or at somebody? No, and it's well, like no, and, and that's to mention also that it's, it's this one singular entity traveling between bodies, and how Alison Lohman even sort of takes that to her advantage with something like transporting her from the seance woman to the goat to this other guy. Um, I, I I would argue it's definitely a slight twist on some of these things we had seen before in the Evil Dead movies. I don't think necessarily it's, aside from, like I said, the one guy who's doing sort of the dead-eye dance going around, I would argue this doesn't feel like an exact copy of Evil Dead to me. It feels like a well, slightly more polished, but not necessarily a bad version of the well, that similar style. I wasn't saying that the, the story and everything felt like a copy at all. I was saying more or less the cinematography, the tricks, the jump scares, the you know, the quick cuts, the quick zooms, the quick edits. It, it just felt like I was watching something I've already seen already. And it felt like it was maybe overused in certain parts. I was really excited to see Sam Raimi's return to horror. What is he going to do now? Well, he's going to do the same thing. Would you maybe have been more excited if Raimi had wanted to do what he originally had, which was to write and produce the movie and get his first choice to direct, which was Edgar Wright, obviously who at this point made Jonathan and Hot Fuzz. He's such a huge fan of Sam Raimi that I think in the hands of Edgar Wright, it would have came out looking like a Sam Raimi movie anyways. Well, I mean, he literally said that when Raimi offered it to him. He just said, uh, I don't know, it feels like it'll be like me doing karaoke. Yeah. Well, hey, good on him, by the yeah. way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One moment in this particular watch that I didn't notice was, I, this is the first time I've ever seen the unrated cut, which the version I have does have the rated and unrated cut. Um, and in that one, I did notice that it has one moment that they splice in. It's the most distinctive change that they do. Um, is that you actually see Allison Lohman stab that cat, and it has a lot yeah. more blood come out. I will say I thought that was a misstep because it feels more inconsistent with the movie in terms of the use of blood. And also, I think it makes that moment a bit too harsh because obviously you're playing with fire, where it's like we're gonna have our main character kill an innocent cat. Like right. obviously that's something harsh to deal with, and I think it's a lot better to kind of have just outside of the house, hear the cat, and then body being buried. I think that's all you necessarily need. And I 
think he, for the most part, avoided a lot of those mistakes in especially the theatrical cut. You could definitely see that he shows his restraints because I'm sure, you know, they, he had uh, this big studio exec breathing down his neck for the Spider-Man movies. So he knew how to kind of just reel everything back in because, yeah, like like you said, he's the independent horror part of him is, you know, Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2 are just like blood-soaked uh, horror romps. And this is, yeah, wave tamer. And, yeah, you could definitely show that. I think that's where he shows his maturity and filmmaking is he just yeah showed restraint what are you talking about studio executives breathing down his neck I mean he wanted Venom he loves Venom Venom <laughs> oh god in, in like smaller sequences that don't feel necessarily like over the top Sam Raimi his great use sort of the geography of a location like when she's at the diner and she's looking around at potential victims that she can give the button to uh, I, I think they do a really great job of kind of building this very, you know, admittingly kind of lame environment, but building so much of, like, around the weight of her trying to do this decision. And even with, you know, it's clear that Raimi loves to kind of clue the audience in on something like this. Like, I don't think we ever doubt once she, like, loses that envelope in the car and then brings it back up that we kind of know what's in there. I, I don't think, and I don't necessarily think Raimi's trying to fool us with that at the same time. I think he's definitely winking at the audience with that, and he kind of knows about sort of the audience expectation and I think that's kind of baked into the movie. Is that because that's a mo- something I've seen people disagree with? Do you guys necessarily agree or disagree, Adam? Like you said, I think he kind of figured that, you know, the the fans and the you know the people really watching it and stuff. It, it's not about playing a trick on us. It's about ultimately the trick that happens to her, and we get to watch it unfold. Yeah, I don't think he was trying to pull a fast one at all. You know, I did catch the. Uh... Delta 88 that Sam Raimi always throws in his films. Of course, that does show up definitely here as Miss Ganoush's car. Um, it's obviously yep. a car that's been there since Evil Dead and shown up in most of his features. I think he even put like a wagon thing over it for Quick and the Dead, is the rumor. That it's somewhere yeah. just covered in a wagon or some shit uh, <laughs> for the Old West. Um, the sort of climactic moment of the movie, where she digs up Miss Ganoush and tries to oh, hand yeah. her the button. Um, I think that's another tremendous example of sort of like the EC Comics influence for Raimi. Uh, there were the, the overhead shots of her like digging up the body and then her just inside of there in the muck and how she's trying to pass this buck off to literally the person who passed it to her originally. Uh, I think is it, it, it's a very over-the-top scene. Apparently, Allison Lohman got shingles from doing that scene because they did they had really? to they did it for two weeks. So she's literally in the mud, shooting that sequence for two weeks. Did you enjoy that sequence, Adam? Yeah, yeah. You know, and I especially liked, uh, very good call on the AC Comics uh, idea, you know, with the rain and the lightning going on in the background. And, you know, just the way, even the way she was dressed, where it was almost in stark white. And it just, yeah, it was really, really cool. Um, I don't understand the logistics of what she was doing. Because she was already dead, but I mean, well, I mean that's well, not she... that's admittedly not helped by um, the probably my biggest issue with the movie is the uh, Dilip Raho character uh, Ram Haas. Uh, that yeah, I... I don't, I don't like him. I do not like his character at all. Uh, I, he's a lot more flat. I think that's where I would really agree with you guys. Is he's has the and this was weird. Like this guy showed up in some huge high profile. I was just gonna say. They were pushing him big. He was in this. God, he was in Inception. And Avatar. Uh, yeah, and yeah, he came out of fucking nowhere. And he's not good in any of them. No. 
he he's he's definitely just more of like an exposition bot of sorts mm-hmm. for the movie, and he has no real personality. I wish honestly we got more of the um, other character, the actual seance woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Where it's her, like uh, the throwback of her in the beginning. Right. Yes, I, I think, um, and I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have that actress's name here. I should find that. But I think she does a tremendous job, especially during the seance scene, where she does definitely feel like a woman who's been through a lot of shit. And I almost kind of love the fact that Alison Loman is almost stepping in on this sequel to this opening sequence uh, that we weren't aware of, and she's just in the middle of it, like, what the fuck's happening? Um, with just, like, small bits that show up. Even, like, I love the ghosts that show up. Honestly, the, that moment where the ghosts show up in that seance scene just made me realize, like, fuck, why didn't we get a Haunted Mansion movie by Sam Raimi? That would have been Well, that dope. would be so much fun. Yes. You but, know what, you know what Sam Raimi reminds me of, dude? Um, especially with scenes like that, to where he could almost pull, like, Joe Dante-style movies. Oh, yeah, he's very... I agree with that. You see a lot of Joe Dante in his work. Mm-hmm. The guy can do it, horror comedy especially, and this movie is funny, and I think you're supposed to laugh, at, you know, even when it's uncomfortable and gross, it's in there to make you laugh, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, like, God, that fucking loogie. Oh, my God. <laughs> it really lost at him at that loogie, and just he, he never quite oh, let go of that. God, it's so gross, dude. It's haunting him for the rest of his life. Yeah, yes. it really does. By the way, that actress's name by the, way, the actress's name Adriana Bazzara. She's really good in it, and um, that was a cool scene. I will give you that. The seance scene, even with the dead eye guy and, and the goat calling her a whore, was cool. It was fun. I, I, you know, if we're talking about scenes that we haven't discussed yet, I, I got to bring up how bleak this movie ends. Oh my god. Oh, yeah. I love the ending of this movie so much. I fucking love the ending of this movie. Nope, she's going to hell. I love it because especially, like, on the first watch, I remember definitely feeling like, oh man, I feel so sorry for this lady. And then, in when especially I watched it this time, it feels less that I feel sorry for her, and it's more of just, like, it's a sadly sort of even-toned neutral stance of like, hey, I want to like you, lady, but I don't know, you kept trying to pass the buck. You made that decision. You kept trying to pass to somebody else. You might have passed it over to, admittedly, that asshole Reggie Lee, who was totally trying to fuck you over on the job. But also, you contemplated just passing off to so many people and then just shoving it back down, you know, th- this through this old lady's throat, this corpse's throat. And there's so much desperation in her, obviously, that you want to potentially see her get out of this. But also, I don't necessarily feel like it's unearned, ultimately. It's it's definitely you know you made that decision you have to live with it and you never. She's kind of a shitty person. She's kind of a shitty person. No, she is. I but I think in a believable human way. So when that happens, you do obviously feel sorry for her. You're like, this is a horrible fate to befall anybody. It's like, but uh, motherfucker, read the terms and conditions. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) She's not mustache twirling evil, and she's not goody goody good. She's just shitty things, but you can tell she's still kind of a a flawed person. Yeah, and that kind of brings up the uh, EC Comics aspect of it again. It's just like karma. Yeah. Like that, all all EC Comics have that like tale of karma like attached to it. And yeah, that's kind of what this was. I think this displays how phenomenal a filmmaker Sam Raimi really is. Is all the build up to that ending where literally just David Pamer's on the phone, just like, hey, that asshole Reggie Lee, he got fired. You're totally going to get that assistant manager job on Monday. And the happy 
gliding look in her eyes as she goes to the train station. She denies that food. It's like, great character. Like, she does Buys good. that new coat. Buys that new coat. She's like, oh, I want to do it for my boyfriend. We're going to go on this really great trip. And Justin Long's got the wedding ring. It's like, oh, no. Some, oh, it's going to be so great. It's going to be such a happy <laughs> ending. And then it's like, oh, by the way, I found your button. And just the look on her face. the How her soul sinks. And she's like, oh, oh yeah, God. She goes, I'm fucked. I'm done. Yep. Yep. And then yep. she falls over into those train tracks, and the train's coming in just as long, and he's like, oh my god, no, what's gonna happen? And then, in the best use of the sort of mix of the practical and the CG effects, uh, her getting dragged to hell is terrifying. And she literally oh, yeah. is yeah. burning as she's going in. She's like, help me! Help me! And then she's gone, just as long's crying there. Drag me to hell! Ta da! <laughs> <laughs> what a happy ending <laughs> that ending was just like the cherry on top for this film yeah the ending saves the movie I mean honestly for me I rewatched this movie more than I've ever rewatched a movie that I don't really you know favor that much and I think it's because of that damn ending because it's like yeah she deserves that shit kinda I mean I don't know if anybody deserves to get dragged to hell by a bunch of goat beasts or whatever the hell we're doing it but, yeah, maybe she kind of does. If only we had flown her over to D.C. There were plenty yeah, no of people kidding. who could deserve that. That's the extent of our political commentary for the evening. I, I agree that I think it does elevate the movie. That moment just displays so much confidence, so much of what, we're, what I'm talking about in terms of that balance between Sam Raimi being the studio filmmaker and the low-budget indie director just molding into this one being where it's very crisp, it looks very nice, and almost the sort of facade studio-ness of how it looks with how bright and wonderful it is sort of subverts all that um, with how just bleak and disturbing and horrible this ending is. And something else we haven't mentioned, but I think um, really needs to be stated, and it's Christopher Young's score for this movie is tremendous. Yeah, actually, I never even thought about that, but yeah, like because the way I look at a score is if I just get sucked into the movie and it doesn't like bring me out of it, like, and it's just part of the film, then it works. And yeah, that's exactly what this score did. Yeah. But it's also, if you even listen to it on its own, it's such a beautiful, lush horror score. Then obviously Christopher Young, for those of you who don't know, also uh, probably most famous for doing the Hellraiser movies, the first two Hellraisers and that score, which fits also perfectly into those movies. It's also yeah. very oh, yeah. um, ethereal and disturbing. And here I think it works, especially because the use of the fiddle is tremendous, and I saw, there's a great interview with him on that Blu-ray I talked about, where he talks about the fact that he sort of intentionally made the fiddles almost seem like it's being played by a devil, and even points where he layered fiddles on top of each other to make it seem like he was, like, playing almost a second one with his tail. It shows how baked into this idea he really was, and how much he wanted to really bring a tremendous, over-the-top, lively score to his, you know, to, to the story. I think it fits tremendously well. Would you at least agree with that, Adam? Yeah, I, I'm more or less in Scott's camp on that, too, to where if I don't notice the score, then it worked. I think it also helps that it kind of bakes into also the sound design of the movie, which is definitely like a high-budget version of what he used to do with the Evil Dead movies in terms of just, like, little sounds, demonic uh, rumblings and screams and giggles that are baked into, along with the score and a lot of the other sort of sound mixing elements in there I think also really helps the movie along the whole way even when in scenes that like mostly play on like shadow like the whole scenes we didn't even mention where she gets attacked by literally the Lamia as its shadow appears 
Um, mm-hmm. And it's just how they showcase and use all, like, the sounds, and even the absence of sound in certain scenes, like when she lays on the bed and then looks over and there's fucking Ganoush. <laughs> also like, Wah! Um, I, I think <laughs> that that sort of thing, it's, I think, like I said, it works really well as a haunted house, spook house style movie in that regard. And I think I'll save that basically as my final thoughts with one additional thing, but admittingly, I think I might have a bit of rose-colored glasses and attachment to this movie, because I will say, I, I don't usually like to talk about sort of audience uh, experiences while watching a movie. One of my favorite theatrical experiences of all time was convincing my father to see this. Because uh, he wasn't, he he didn't really know much about Evil Dead or anything like that, but he loves horror comedy movies. This is the man who introduced me to stuff like A Young Frankenstein, you know, Beetlejuice, a lot of those like horror comedies that he really liked, uh, like really passed it on to me. And then Good this man. was a moment where I was just like, "Hey, yeah, it's a new movie from the guy who made Spider Man. It's like a horror comedy thing." It's like, "Oh, I like those." And we were the only ones in the theater, and mm-hmm. it's oh, one nice. of the best experiences I've had in a movie theater of all time because it was just we were barreling over laughing but I will say I think that still proceeds even watching the movie alone in a room I, I think I still felt that infectious fun with the movie on its own merits but there's also that little story there and now it's Adam can you shit all over that please <laughs> no, 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 no. it's a good memory I'm not going to shit on that look man I, I understand why people like this movie I understand why people hate this movie. I'm not going to sit here and say I hate it. I, it's not one of the. It's not the worst Sam Raimi movie by far. If I can't get behind the two basically main characters of the movie, uh, be it because of the characters or the acting, then I, it, it's not going to work for me. And that's my problem with this movie. I just can't get behind Alice alone because of her acting. And I'm not a big Justin Long fan. Never have been. Nothing feels fresh to me nothing feels new to me other than the ending that to me this movie is kind of a pass and scott this is a fun just turn your brain off and enjoy sam raimi film i the effects in it are fun even when they are the bad cgi scenes which there's a few certain ones that are just glaring but even those i kind of just toss up just like eh, it was fun it makes it it fit with what was going on in the film. Uh, yeah, the tricks that he uses are you know, more of the same, which is what I was hoping for. The over-the-topness of, like I was saying before, the Evil Dead-style films, and then the seriousness, seriousness of this film all blends together and just makes this an all-around fun experience that I'm glad I own it, because it is something I definitely rewatch at least once every two years. Let's go to the past. Let's go to an older film, Sam Raimi's first attempt at a big studio production and superhero films with 1990s Darkman. Who is Darkman? I gotta tell you something about me. He's a cockroach. You think you kill him? And he pops up someplace else. In the darkest hour, there's a light that shines on every human being. But one, Darkman, rated R, starts Friday at theaters everywhere. So yes, Darkman, uh, which, as I mentioned, came out in 1990, August 24th, 1990, um, and was important in Grammy's career in terms of, like I mentioned, it is a his first big studio movie. Um, this was the film he did after Evil Dead 2 which was a step up from the extremely low-budget production of the original Evil Dead, but still a low-budget fare 
for sure. And also Crime Wave was in the middle of that, which is kind of a studio movie, but also super low budget. That's a different story. Uh, but then Darkman is his first attempt at doing a superhero film. He had wanted to originally do a movie based on The Shadow, the old 40s serial. And, uh, and he couldn't get the rights to that, so he created his own character here. And uh, Adam picked this as the bad movie. And I'm curious uh-huh. to have him talk a bit more about what he dislikes about Darkman. Okay. Now, when I first saw Darkman, I thought it was fantastic. It blew my mind. It was so violent and crazy. And I had the comics that tied into it. I had everything. Then... I kind of lost touch with Darkman because of all the damn horrible sequels that came out. Then I rewatched the original when it came out on uh, DVD. I went and bought him. Like, oh my god, fucking Darkman! And it is such a schlocky, horribly acted piece of shit, <laughs> dude. I appreciate the fun elements of it, but Liam Neeson is almost unbearable in this movie. Francis McDormand, who I forget his name, but the guy who plays the main bad guy is one of the worst fucking actors I've ever seen in my life. Uh, Louis Stack, Colin Friels. I, I literally can't watch this movie anymore. I, I'll get like a, a little bit in and it just blows my mind how fucking crazy and all over the place this movie is. I will say, I will give it this though. The, the actual makeup effects are pretty good and the look of Darkman... It's pretty cool. That is, I mean, and he was going intentionally, he said, uh, for a tribute to sort of the Universal Monsters, and mainly definitely feel like a fan of the opera vibe, and also obviously the Invisible Man and the Mummy with sort of the right, rubbing, absolutely, sort of yes, he's definitely kind of going for that, but also adding his sort of distinctive, more gory touches with how his face looks. And uh, but what about you, Scott? Uh, how do you feel about Dark Man? Well, let's see. When Dark Man first came out, my stepdad like worked for a video dis- distribution company and brought the VHS home and we watched it shortly after it came to VHS and like Adam I loved it as a kid and rewatching it probably about I'd say 10 years ago I seen some flaws in it and then the rewatch for tonight man I never never realized how bad of an actor Liam Neeson really could be his portrayal was just cringeworthy in so many scenes but i mean it's still a lot of fun even if even with this bad acting it almost kind of fits together that way and it just has that uh dark feel which i like to superhero movies which we don't normally get nowadays because i mean keep in mind this was so off the heels of fucking tim burton's batman this is one of many movies that were greenlit after batman made a shit ton of money it's like fuck superheroes do it batman made a bunch of money we gotta do this and this uh, definitely came out in the wake of like there were other, like there was a shadow adaptation, obviously starring Alec Baldwin that came out a few years but after. That's this. the one we got. Yeah, we got the Alec Baldwin one. Uh, this was the same year as Dick Tracy, which also had a Danny Elfman score, and both feel very similar to the Batman score. Like it's almost as if he was <laughs> just greenlit to do these. It's just like Danny, can you make us a score like Batman? And he just took his sheet music from Batman and put a few different notes in. And he's like, here. And yeah, because it sounded like it was Batman mixed with Beetlejuice for this film. Oh, yeah, I, I would say that. Yeah, if you want even more explicitly that, definitely Dick Tracy. Dick Tracy almost feels like theft. Oh, it, oh, are you kidding? It's almost identical. But yeah, with me and Darkman, I didn't watch this until high school, and I remember thinking at the time, like, oh, this is really fun. It's not as good as the Spider-Man movies. And then watching it this time, I'm like, oh, this is pretty fun. It's not as good as the Spider-Man movies. 
I, my opinion has not changed very much on Dark Man. I think it's fun. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly what it is. It's fun. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I don't, and I don't even. Dis- I honestly disagree. I think with Liam Neeson's part, it's definitely very silly, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I never feel like it's disingenuous at the same time. I feel like oh, I think he's overacting so much in this, but movie. not in a disingenuous way. That's the thing. I think what works about his character is he's definitely heightened, obviously, like any Sam Raimi protagonist. This was originally going to be uh, Bruce Campbell, and uh, they said, no, we can't trust him to that. Do you guys feel like that might have been a better choice? I, I don't. I don't think Bruce Campbell could get the actual anger and menace as well, because Bruce Campbell just comes off comedic when he does it. I mean, it, it's just what he is. Yeah, and I kind of this... disagree with that, because Bruce Campbell never really had that chance to step outside of the comedic zone so if i would have liked to seen his portrayal of it just to be a lot more darker and more emotional well i mean we we kind of got glimpses of that at certain points like um in evil dead 2 uh where he is transformed and sees linda's necklace and he's like (laughs) Uh, which you know maybe to adam's point then necessarily would have worked for a whole movie as opposed to one small sequence in evil dead movie but i i think um, Neeson does a, a pretty good job of putting a lot into this movie, which might not necessarily work for everybody, but I think it feels consistent with the tone the movie's going for, which is definitely a pulpy um, attempt at, like I said, kind of also randing Batman. I mean, I wouldn't say it's the best of those movies that came out like in the early 90s that sort of took the tact of, oh, Batman's super popular. Instead of superheroes, let's do pulpy returns from, like, 1930s properties. It's not the best one of those. I would argue Rocketeer is the best one, for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I agree. And and it's the most under-remembered one because of the fucking Phantom and Shadow and all that other bullshit that just doesn't hold up very well at all. That just, yeah. And those feel so much more disingenuous to me, I think, than something like a Dark Man. It's going for sort of a universal monster stone. Even at certain points, he kind of is going for, like, an almost silent film acting bravado with how he's doing certain scenes. But I don't think that's necessarily out of character or out of tone for this movie at all. Now, do you feel that maybe you like this This one's a little bit different or more genuine for you because it's not based on original material? Do you think that maybe those other guys were kind of beholden to the pre-existing material so they weren't really able to let go? I don't know. I feel like more with those movies, it definitely just feels more fake, necessarily, to me. I think They, it, they feel factory churned out. I mean, yes. That's... Yeah, they just feel like, make it this way, here you go. Right, and I mean, this one does definitely suffer, I think, from some studio meddling. Raimi and uh, Rob Tapper, who obviously was his producer at the Evil Dead movies, have said as much that like they had a lot of issues with the production, and they didn't feel like it was quite the movie they wanted it to be. And I can definitely see that. I think, if anything, you know, it reminds me the most of the original Spider-Man that he did, which I still like. I still have a lot of fun with that movie. But you can tell yeah. that's the that one had a lot of sort of the tampering of Sony coming in and just jutting in with stuff like Macy Gray showing up and the Green Goblin costume and some what other fuck? things. Oh. Like, oh, I, I think th- th- that is a good sort of parallel for this movie, um, but both still feel very genuine, and I think that's what really works about it. Even, like, Liam Neeson and Francis McDormand, not understated, not grounded. It's definitely, I think that's something that's missing from here that makes, say, A Drag Me to Hell a better movie. But at the same time, I think they're committing to it, I think they're definitely, especially in like the sequences where he shows up at the graveyard and she just looks at him like, no, you were dead. It's like, I'm back. It's me. Come on, it's me. And all of a sudden, it's, it's silly. But I don't think it's you silly. Are, you are back, Peyton. I am, aren't I? You're like, get the fuck out of here. No, that's great, though. I, I, I love how 
all in they're going with that. I, I don't ever feel like Liam Neeson is being disingenuous, even when he's doing something as silly, very silly, as when um, he leaves after the carnival scene and she goes over to, like, his hideout and he's going through the rafters with the fucking stuffed elephant. And he's like, whoa! <laughs> 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 like, I, I honestly just found that highly entertaining. I never felt like it was a case of, like, oh my god, like, Neeson, what are you doing? It's like, no, he's doing what the movie's telling him to do. God, it's just so over the top. And why is it's that just, a bad thing? Well, it just comes off phony to me, man. Where where does it, the line between like this being phony and say an Evil Dead movie doing similar over the top stuff work for you? Well, not necessarily with Evil Dead One, but with Evil Dead Two, the whole movie was just so fucking zany. And Bruce Campbell is a master of comedic horror acting. I mean, he's one of the best out there. I like Liam Neeson. I like Liam Neeson a lot. I think when Liam Neeson really applies himself, he's fantastic. And as we've seen now, later in his career, when Liam Neeson does try to do comedic parts, he's really good in them. This movie is not a comedy, but it is. It's not a straight-up action movie, but it is. It, it's it's all over the place for me in tone. The problem is for me is they go for it in a lot of scenes, like especially the scene... When he breaks the carney's fingers, you know, they zoom in on his face and his eyes turn into fire. And, all and the background shit. fucking dissipates yeah, and the then comes back together like a jigsaw puzzle. And he's clearly wearing like a latex appliance on his forehead because mm-hmm. his eyebrows look so funny. That works for me because it's so crazy, but they don't f- keep that tone throughout the movie. They really don't. You can tell they hold back a lot, probably because of studio meddling, but... It's just, it's almost jarring when it does happen for me. See, you know, I'll say this much. I agree with you about the, the, the unfortunately main villain character of, of sorts. Um, I, I, so no, and I think what he versus Liam Neeson, I think is a good example of where the movie kind of feels disingenuous versus when it doesn't. Cause I think with that character, he's going over the top in a way that seems like he hasn't really studied what everyone else is doing. It definitely feels more just like, oh, I'm you know I'm a comic book villain. This is what comic book villains do, right? And it's like not quite because you're going hammy, but it's not in a way that fits consistently with the tone of the movie. Uh, Liam Neeson is going full barrel with it, versus that guy is just kind of screaming, and he feels like like oh that's comic booky. Versus no, what is comic booky is Liam Neeson going full hog, especially with like the visual silent acting, the moments where he's like looking at his fucking horrible hands. The bit, honestly, my favorite bit of the whole movie, where he looks at the fucking cat and he's like, "What? Do you think I'm some kind of circus freak?" And then he puts on the fucking hat. He's like, "Look at the dancing freak, pay five bucks." Like that feels like a guy <laughs> who has been completely disillusioned from the world is completely closed off has only had himself and this fucking cat and these computers to find him company oh, Plus, he's a crazy person yeah no, he's he a is, fucking crazy person a crazy person you know we haven't I heard did... from scott in a bit i want to hear a bit more from scott on yes. this topic yes, scott i do too especially wanna... his voice it's gorgeous of course do you want to add anything to this scott because <laughs> i'm kind of in between both of you guys with uh liam neeson now that i'm thinking about it because yes his over-the-top zaniness worked great for this movie like but there were certain scenes that oh man i just i had to almost look away because it was so cringy like when you when he is watching his uh assistant get murdered and his reaction to that (laughs) oh my god that that was i just i i was just sitting there going this this isn't real 
no. What? I can't. No, I just couldn't. That, that was your first clue. This movie wasn't very realistic. Not not the moments where he's getting like right before that, where he's getting like thrown into cabinets and glass, and he's like kind of scarred up. <laughs> like really. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. I mean, just just the way Liam Neeson portrayed that, just that scene, and it stuck with me. And I caught like certain images and scenes of him like later on with just. I don't know. There was something about the way he did it. Like it was either like he didn't care and then he really cared like for his role. It just like, it was off and on. It felt it wasn't very consistent. Mm-hmm, right. So you feel that is that a similar issue you have with the movie as a whole? Do you feel it isn't consistent? Like we kind of mentioned with some of the tonal stuff kind of, but at the same time, like it didn't bother me with this film in general. Like I still enjoyed it. Like I said, I really like the look of him, though. I mean, Darkman looks fucking awesome. Mm-hmm. Like, he looks good. Even, the, like, it's, like you said, it's totally Tim Burton's Batman down to the way the movie's colored, the set design, everything. I do like Larry Drake. I do like Durant a lot. Yep, that's where I was going to go with this. If Larry Drake was not the not Durant in this film, I don't know if I would like it nearly as much as I do, but he plays that over-the-top comic book villain perfectly. And I really like when it's Darkman impersonating Durant. Yes. Oh, yeah. How, how over <laughs> the top he becomes. I agree. I think that is like the sort of peak of the movie is the sequence where um, he's imitating Larry Drake. Um, <laughs> and, and I think he works, I agree, because like Neeson, I would argue he's kind of committed to that part. But at the same time, he's more low key than Neeson is, which I think works really well for when he does go over the top. Um, in that whole sequence where he's chasing down and they're in the middle of like Chinatown and the, the whole revolving door bit is amazing. Just like, shoot him! No, shoot him! No, shoot him! <laughs> <laughs> um, and like you said, I, I like the subtlety of the makeup effects where you can tell it's just that un- uncanny valley. And I think it's instinctively, if you look at like whenever, the, especially the hands are done close-ups, um, there are no veins. Yeah. Like, th- there, are, there, are no, there are no like distinctive sort of veins. It feels like there's a slight plasticky sheen to it, um, but uh, especially how kind of um, the the character has to kind of work around the fact that he can't do much vocal work and he's limited in that range. Um, I, I think that's also a tremendous kind of disadvantage to put our character at. So there's tension in the scene where like he meets up with that guy who's his supplier. Mm-hmm. And I think that also works for the Dark Man character is the fact that he really studies these people. He gets to know them. I do want to bring up one thing that you brought up: the hands. Yes. Um, I remember reading an article. I don't know where it could have been online or in magazine, but um, that was something Sam Raimi purposely wanted to do because of Westworld. They were phonies by their hands. So he kind of put that as a little nod because it, he's right. If you do look, almost any time other than when he's actually Liam Neeson, his hands look phony. Right. Which is pretty cool. No, right. It's, there's a lot of great detail work, especially with just how even um, you, that whole sequence where Durant's uh, phone flunkies invade his uh, lab and they, he's, like, switching off different masks and doing all this shit. I think that's a tremendous sequence of just sort of, like, playing with the audience, like we mentioned. Like, literally, the bit where he's, um, you know, got three different masks on of the other guy and has his mouth taped shut. And you can see the tape inside of Liam Neeson's mouth uh-huh. when he gets shot. And then he takes off the mask, like, oh my god, it's that guy. Um, I, I think that that's a great sequence, especially even for 1990. The split screen sort of work there is actually pretty seamless. No, it's, yeah. it's really well done. 
Mm-hmm. Because I've even seen pre when everything was so CGI heavy, split screen scenes where are some of them are so bad. And this one, it it holds up pretty good, dude. Well, right, yeah, not necessarily as much when they have to do sort of the um the matting processes. Say like the bit where jump where Darkman jumps down from the top. Yeah. And oh it, yeah. The the matting there doesn't work as great, and it's a shame, especially when um it's in. Another sequence I'm like, wow, they fucking actually did this, where he's in, uh, like, below on the helicopter, and he's holding on to the yep. rope, and they actually have a fucking dude on the b- bottom of a helicopter gliding along, yeah, no and then way. you have occasional shots where they do have, like, Liam Neeson kind of inserted in, and it's like, eh, not great. It's just, like, one of my favorite sequences of the movie, but it looks terrible, when he's sh- uh, shoving Ivan, Ivan Raimi up through the sewer. Uh, Ted Raimi. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's Ted. I'm sorry. Yeah, shows Ted up. Ivan's the writer. Ted's the actor. Right. I always get them confused. But he shoves them up through the sewer, and uh, all the cars are coming, and it's clearly a green screen. But it's still a really fun sequence. There's even an artifice with Ted Raimi coming up. He almost seems like a puppet when he's jumping out out of there. And it feels almost like it's a very higher budget version of like a trauma scene and the way that even Ted Raimi's like bobbing around when he first pops up like ah, oh my god oh no it's uh I think the the over the top acting honestly kind of like makes this feel like a more consistent world than maybe the effects necessarily do are there any other sequences that stick out to you Scott we haven't mentioned it was during the helicopter scene but it was just like that one little bit of comedy that was added when he goes flying through the skyscraper and just lands in the business meeting room, like, oh, excuse me, and then goes flying back out. <laughs> that feels like the urtext of so many of the Spider-Man movies, right there. That's a right. moment where it's just like, you can tell in about fucking 12 years, he's going to be doing that exact same thing on a higher budget with more consistent visual effects. I would say, yeah, and then, like, another scene that also felt, you know, kind of like something we'd see in Spider-Man, mm-hmm. it's like, also with the helicopter, but when, when they drive him down into traffic... And he's just trying to avoid the cars and, like, just trying to jump up over the cars and everything. Right, and one of them being the Delta 88, obviously. Which, yep. interestingly, uh, it, the guys in the passenger seat and driver's seat are Joel and Ethan Cohen. That's so insane. Yeah, they're all buddies, aren't they? Joel Cohen was an assistant editor on The First Evil Dead. Like, that's how they kind of right. got okay. started together. Right. And then from there, they, like, helped each other on the earlier projects, like Crime Waves, written by the Cohen brothers. They did some uncredited script writing here. Um, Sam Raimi was a second unit director on the Hudsucker Proxy. They were definitely buddies, especially around this time. And of course, obviously, um, Francis McDormand would later marry um, one of the Coens, I believe, Ethan. Yes, yes. Yes. yes, yes, yes. Um, I guess we haven't talked about her as much. You guys obviously probably aren't the biggest fans of McDormand in the film. Uh, In the film, no. As an actress, yes. But in this, she drives me up the fucking wall. I could care less one way or another whether her. She wasn't anything extraordinary. She wasn't terrible to me. I thought she was. She just did a passable job. Well, um, I, I don't necessarily have the same defense I have, say, for, like, a Neeson. Um, I, I think they come off as at least a cute couple in sequences, like, where he comes in with the coffee. I thought they built at least a likable couple together. There's one shot I completely forgot about, but it's honestly tremendous in this movie, where she sees the lab blow up, and she thinks, oh, he's dead. And there's a single shot of her going from in her suit to dissolving into a funeral garb at the cemetery is oh, that a tre- shot was cool. tremendous visual shot. I think that's another great example of sort of his knack for transitions uh, really just showcasing wonderfully. Yeah, because that shot was really impressive. I gotta give it that. 
this is not her. Like, this role, this character, is not a Frances McDormand character or role. And I never once see her and Liam Neeson as a believable couple either. I mean, I, I would say believable for the context of this world. And I think I especially, like I said, have a lot more respect for her in any of the sequences where she's hanging around the other villain of the movie. It feels like he's a, less uh, a comic book villain and more a lesser version of Alice in Die Hard Guy, like a bad 80s villain. He's like a half-assed Gordon Gecko from Wall Street. Uh, well, I guess we should go into our final thoughts then on Darkman. Scott, why don't you start this time? Final thoughts on Darkman. Alright, uh, Darkman, it's enjoyable for the dark comic book characters of the 90s. Like, it definitely had some inspirations, but with the Sam Raimi touches, that just makes it so much fun. Uh, like I was saying, though, without Larry Drake, I don't know how much I would enjoy this, because for me, he carried the film in every scene that he was in. He was just way over the top in the best possible way ever. Liam Neeson, yeah, you convinced me a bit, but I still am not a big fan of his portrayal. But all in all, you know, this is definitely fun and is definitely going to be at my rewatching list uh, every so often. But uh, Adam, go ahead, uh, Mr. Party Pooper. Uh, go ahead yeah. with your thoughts on Dark. <laughs> every party's got a pooper. That's why we invited you. <laughs> um, if you got like a 10 to a, I'd say, 13-year-old kid who's into horror and superhero movies... You can't go wrong with this. I think this would blow their mind because that's what it did for me. It's just I find it annoying now that I'm older. Fucking it's so all over the place. And the acting is so bad from a lot of different people in it that I just I can't do it. I can't do it anymore with Darkman. Darkman is I've left him. You know, and I, <laughs> I, I won't go back. I won't. <laughs> Uh, you, you, you'll disappear into the crowd and have Bruce Campbell's face. Right. That'd be fucking fantastic. Especially early 90s yeah. Bruce Campbell, sure. Yeah, right. For sure. I'll take Bruce Campbell's <laughs> face now. But, um, <laughs> like, it just doesn't hold up for me. I'll say that, like, I don't necessarily have any nostalgic attachment to Dark Man. I think I, I watched this because I, I discovered the Evil Dead movies in high school after I'd seen the Spider-Man movies. I'm like, oh my god, these are great. And I can't wait. I gotta see more of his stuff. And I found this, like I said back then and also to now a cute but very flawed um, early example of him kind of breaking the mold into the studio system. It definitely feels like it's unpolished in a way that is just too polished to be one of his earlier movies but not quite polished enough to be one of his uh, better studio films. I still have fun with it. I still would say that um, most of the actors, I would argue, do a pretty good job of playing within this uh, sort of universe. I would sort of put in, like, the middle of his filmography. And if anything would say, it kind of reminds me also um, of the alternative choice that we almost had uh, for Oz the Great and Powerful. I think when you see that, that's more of Raimi desperately trying to kind of work around the studio system, especially a more powerful studio system, kind of choking down his personality in favor of over-the-top special effects and much bigger miscastings. Him, you know, I'm glad we didn't cover that one. I gotta be honest. Yeah. No, um, it would have been a lot more anger, um, especially yes. for me, um, because it just, oh, no, that's terrible so much. But, but I think the wholesomeness of Sam Raimi, what I love, we haven't mentioned much of this, but what I love about Sam Raimi is the fact that he's this guy who does these big, zany, over-the-top things in Drag Me to Hell or this or any of the other movies. But you hear him in interviews, and he's the sweetest Midwestern gentleman of all time. He just he's comes... from Mine and Scott State, motherfucker. Yeah, exactly. 
Right. Yeah. And he he definitely um, just comes off so jovial and so honest. Like I, one of my favorite things was him on the Nerdist podcast when they brought up Oz the Great and Powerful. Just like, hey, I thought you did a pretty good job with Oz the Great and Powerful because you know Chris Hardwick being who he is. Um, and yeah. all that Sam Raimi had to say about that movie, and I think the only word he's really said to post like the big promotion prior to it coming out was, "I did the best I could." always is somebody that wants to please the audience and what the audience wanted, especially at this time, right after Batman came out, was an over-the-top silly movie that had dark overtones to it and had, like, you know, sort of the superhero vigilanteisms that, you know, people were kind of craving. It is unpolished and I think it would do a much better job once he got to the Spider-Man films. But I think for what it is, it's a cute little um, encapsulation of that time period and what the audiences wanted and what Sam Raimi wanted to give to them. And on that note, that's the end of our discussion on the Sam Raimi films. Uh, We have some feedback to read. We asked you all favorite and least favorite Sam Raimi filmography. Uh, Matt Kozlowski says, uh, Love Evil Dead 2, Hate Oz the Great and Powerful. Yeah. 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 I can agree there. We're we're pretty much in agreement on that. Uh, Jordan Worth Cobb says, Well, the Evil Dead films go without saying, but I also really enjoy all the Spider-Man films, have a huge soft spot for Dark Man and Drag Me to Hell, and I really love A Simple Plan. As for Not So Good, uh, well, for the love of the game and Oz the Green Powerful are certainly down there. Yeah, um, if you've never seen A Simple Plan, you're a Sam Raimi fan, seek that out. A Simple Plan is a fantastic movie. A tremendous... Yeah, that's what I still need to see. Oh my god, it's such a tremendous underrated drama. I'd I'd argue that's one of his best. No, I would agree. That is third for me after Evil Dead 2, Spider-Man 2, A Simple Plan. I think okay, those... Yeah, I can agree with that, actually. I agree with that entire lineup. Hey, we agree sometimes, guys. Hey! <laughs> hey! And I think it's a tremendous job with that. It's one of Bill Paxton's best performances. Billy Bob yes. Thornton. Oh my oh, god. A fucking fantastic it's such man, a tragic, right? beautiful performance mm-hmm. from him. But yeah. And as definitely... far as for the love of the game... Um, I think it's a well-shot movie, well-directed movie. I guarantee Kevin Costner had his hands in that fucking movie. Yeah, that was around the time where he had been doing, like, Postman and shit like that. And and, uh, Kevin Costner, baseball. I mean, he he was involved in that movie. I think that's why it became so fucking dry and boring. I'm not as huge a fan of Spider-Man 3. I've grown to at least not hate it over the course of the last decade or so. I think it's a disappointing end to that Spider-Man trilogy, but I think... that I really hate it. I really hate it. But I think especially the parts that people like to harp on are the ones I don't think are that awful. Of, like, particularly, like, people have so much issue with, like, him as the, uh... Emo Peter Parker. Emo Peter Parker. I think that works because that's what Peter Parker thinks a cool person is, and even right. then... That didn't bother me. When he was no. dancing down the street, I was laughing in the theater. I thought but, it was yeah. kind of funny. And it also helps that people around him are clearly saying, like, look at this fucking idiot. I right. think it's everybody around is like, what the fuck? I got a lot of problems with that movie. That's not one of them. My bigger issue is, say, like, doing the weird, like, La La Land-esque dance sequence in the bar. Not necessarily the dance sequence, as much as him immediately slapping Mary Jane after that, and the tonal shift that just happens there. That yeah. stuff yeah. definitely... I think that's the bigger problem, is the tonal shifts are a lot more jarring in that than, say, in the original two Spider-Man movies. It feels a bit more awkward and clunky. Right. But to, to keep going with the feedback, Brian Kane says, uh, For me, modern comedy horror began, peaked, and ended with the Evil Dead franchise. Nothing in the subgenre even comes close to striking the balance that Raimi made. Even to this day, my pulse quickens during the Deadite POV cam sequences. 
I would definitely say it's a peak. I wouldn't say it's the end all be all. Um, no, yeah, I I don't think it ended with that at all. Because I mean, Shaun of the Dead, yep. Tucker exactly. and Val versus Evil, yep. I mean, there's there's a couple out there that are still pretty good. Mm-hmm. What we do in the shadows? Yes. Oh my god, that's that's to me what we do in the shadows is the best modern horror comedy. Easily. Yeah. Right, in, in terms of last uh, 10 to 15 years, for sure. It's, yeah, it's one of the, absolutely. the upper echelon ones. And honestly, horror comedy is my favorite subgenre of film. But I think it is because the ones that stand out and do a great job are like classic, all-time, mm-hmm. amazing movies. Mm-hmm. And then when they fail, they fuck up so hard. Oh, like, they're, they're bad. They're they're, really bad. There, is few, there isn't much middle ground for horror comedy at all. And I think well, that's why I'm cu- so curious about it as a subgenre. Well, I've always said when it's a bad horror movie or a bad comedy, that's the worst of the worst. Mm-hmm. When a bad horror movie is one of the hardest movies to watch yes. because there's no scares, there's no nothing. It's not eliciting anything out of you. Same with bad comedy. If you don't think it's funny, it's just, it's a chore to get through. And a yep. lot of movies combine the two. And Jesus, when they're bad, they're the worst. The 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 best thing they could do, which Sam Raimi did do, the scary has to be scary. Mm-hmm. And the comedy has to be funny. The horror is the straight man versus the yeah. comedy plays off of right. that. Well, what about, uh, where do you stand on all this, Scott? I'm right there with you because comedy is very subjective. And it, like you were saying, like if you can screw up a horror comedy so easily and it's just not, there's nothing redeemable about, redeemable about it. But if you nail it, it it's in the upper echelons of the horror films. Because, I mean, we got Return of the Living Dead. I, I was just going to say, Return of the Living mm-hmm. Dead is one of the American best. American Werewolf in London. Right. Like, especially this year, I have come across a lot of bad horror comedies like Dead Shack. Oh, yes. my God. Dead Shack. Oh, yep. God. If, if you want a great example of how to do a horror comedy, how not to by the same person, watch Tucker and Dale vs. Evil, which I agree is one of the best mm-hmm. ones, and then watch Eli Craig's follow-up, Little Evil, which is garbage. Oh, my God. Little yeah. Evil is horrible. And then a bit of feedback also from our last episode about Halloween from Oliver Sloan, who says, As strange as it may seem, I actually only like the original and number three, Season of the Witch, it's so underrated. I can't agree with him more. Season, Season of the Witch is so underrated. Yes. Yeah. It's phenomenal. And I like the the originals, one of my favorite movies of all time. It stops for me at Halloween 3. Like, 1, 2, and 3, I'm done. Well, and as of, <laughs> by the way, as of this recording, uh, you all would have probably seen the Halloween new one. We have not yet. Right. Uh, no, I'm supposed to go this weekend, hopefully. Yes, yep. uh, we, we may report on that later at some other point but regardless uh we want to thank all of you for submitting that feedback we also want to thank some other people thanks to chris oliver for the music used in our show listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com thanks to emily scarda for the art for our show uh, she accepts commissions at fiverr with two rs.com slash ee scarda and of course we want to thank mr scott crawford for appearing on the show scott plug away what do you got to plug all right thanks guys for having me on it's been great um but yeah, you can check me out on my. I'm the host of the podcast by the cemetery, where it's me and two of my close buddies that we were. We just get into a room and talk uh, two different horror films because one of our, my one friend Tim, does not watch horror films, so we like to submit him to some pretty messed up movies just to kind of push his limits. 
and it's good to get a reaction from someone that's not into the genre to like have his viewpoints on it. But yeah, we are part of the Legion Podcast Network, so you can check us out on the legionpodcast.com. And uh, I also do a bit of writing for pophorror.com, where I am basically the lead writer for the video game department of the website, which we just started back in May. And yeah, I've been pretty much writing reviews and editorials there. We also have a Facebook group for the podcast by the cemetery. So yeah, go ahead and check us out there as well if you could. Um, and of course, we also have um, our own presence online. We are at DEDVPod on Twitter and Facebook. And that is where we post every Monday about the questionnaires we put out for our episodes. But like, well, what's your favorite Sam Raimi movie? Uh, amongst other topics we'll be doing in the future. The... Email, of course, we also have for that is uh, double edge double bill, all spelled out at gmail.com. Um, we have individual Twitter accounts. I'm at not the who's Tommy. And Adam, do we just want to officially retire? Yeah, uh, I mean, we probably can. Do we want to do Do we want to lay to rest, Malekith Band 6969? Yeah, we're going to lay to rest. I'll probably eventually be back with something a little more uh, personal and appropriate. But as of now, I'm going to say Malekith Band 6969 is dead. Yes, get ready for Malekith Rule 34 fan. Uh, but yeah, the, the unfortunate RIP Malekith fan 6969, the, the true casualty of the show. Yep. Um, and also, none subs- of us will miss you. None of us will. <laughs> you barely existed on the radar anyway, much like Malekith yeah. himself. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, no, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, fuck me. <laughs> <laughs> no, not fuck you. Fuck your inability to use Twitter, asshole. Uh, subscribe to us also <laughs> on iTunes. Uh, rate and review the show to give us more visibility. Talk about all the witty banter that just went on here. Um, but until then, gentlemen, um, I think it's time that we just calmly left the show. Everything's fine. We're finished with the episode. Nothing's bad's going to happen. But Adam, you forgot your button. Oh, no. Oh, no. He's what? going to hell. Oh, no. Oh, uh. <laughs> we miss him. What? Do we? No. <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>